God is like, why, 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 why are you doing this? Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. Joining me today, we've got Tracy. Good morning. And Karen. Hello. And Eric. Good morning. I think I threw some of you off there with that out of order stuff. You weren't wait. You weren't ready for me. Gotta keep us on our toes. <laughs> well, we're recording this the weekend of Independence Day. That's a that's an important day here in the United States, or it ought to be. But um, it's always a time to reflect on freedoms we have. Just just looking at the, the I guess the blessings that we've got here in the United States, even though sometimes seems like things get a little squirrely and weird, we still seem to be one of the most free nations with all of our blemishes and whatnot. But um, we seem to be one of the greatest places of opportunity. It allows us to do things like this, have a podcast where we can just talk freely about the Bible to anybody who will listen. Some countries, they'd be knocking down your door and hauling you out into the street. So I think we've got a pretty good thing going here for as long as it lasts. And uh, I, for one, am grateful for it. You know, I I used to work in the state court system, and I worked for a number of judges and I was continually talking to jury pools, right, for doing trials and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because the judges who had been to the international law conferences all had a very different perspective on America and its rights and privileges and freedoms than the judges who had not. And, and along those same lines, Every once in a while, we would get a juror who had lived overseas, lived in another country. And they were always like the the jurors or the potential jurors, right? We're talking about pools of people to pick from for a trial, not people who were picked. But they they were often complaining, right? Like, well, this is stupid and blah, blah, blah. But then every once in a while, you'd get somebody who had lived in a foreign country for a number of years, and they would be like, I am proud to be part of this. There is nothing like it in the world. This is amazing, right? Mm -hmm. And then the judges would tell me that when they were at these international law conferences, you know, judges from other countries would come up to them in just like awestruck, hushed tones, like, what's it like? Mm -hmm. What is it like to work in that system? You guys have the best system on earth. And they would always come back sort of like, you know, glowing with pride. And like, it doesn't mean that you think your system is perfect. It means there's a whole lot of human effort on earth to rule each other and to conduct uh, conduct a country in different ways. And from these people's perspectives, at least, um, America's ideas were amazing and like the best thing going on the planet. And they couldn't, some of these professionals they couldn't even imagine being part of a system that actually offered free, you know, free access to justice like mm. that. Like, anyway, it was it, it was always kind of neat to hear those perspectives. It was a good reminder because you get spoiled, right? You're here, you get spoiled. Pretty soon, all you see is the flaws, and then you're just like, "Well, this is dumb," and like, you know, and then all you want to do is complain and you want to put down the whole idea. Uh-uh. The idea is great. The idea is the best thing going on the planet. 
Yeah. Nothing compared to God's kingdom. <laughs> That's not the point. <laughs> that will be that'll be something to see how it compares, won't it? We'll be. Oh, it won't even compare. No. Good heavens. I don't think so. I don't think so. Actual Ooh. justice, actual truth compared to human efforts at it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well. No, I don't know. I personally think we got it pretty good here. I'm not one of the world travelers. I know a lot of people say your perspective changes as you travel the world, and I'm sure it does. But I still tend to think that we've got it pretty darn good here. So, uh, anyway, let's uh, get into our discussion this week. Last week, we had left off with a bit of a review, because we discussed it before, but of the uh, crowning of Joash and the death of his uh, grandmother, Adaliah. Um, she was she was kind of bad news, and she didn't make it terribly long. But Joash had been crowned at the tender age of seven years old. And um, we had discussed uh, just a little briefly about how a seven-year-old really probably wasn't going to be able to do much ruling on his own accord. But he's being brought up by the it seems it seems to me like he's being brought up by the priesthood at this point because he had been hidden away while his grandmother was doing her shenanigans. And then they kind of secretly uh, brought him out and and crowned him at seven years old. And um, seems like the priesthood was a big influence on him through his younger years. And we're told in Second Kings chapter twelve, which, by the way, I guess I should have started with this. We're we're reading Second Kings twelve through fourteen and Second Chronicles twenty four uh, and twenty five. And there's a lot of bouncing back and forth between this. It's it's some of those chapters that are very similar. But we're told that Joash did write, and it seems like this was as long as the priests instructed him. Because things get a little squirrely when he gets older, but at least in his younger years, he's doing some some good things, uh, and maybe that's at the prodding of the priesthood. Although we are told that he did not take down any of the high places. Did you kind of get that that this uh, he's being raised by priests, and and maybe that's why he's doing things? You know what I had written down is mm. you are your environment. Yeah. 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 Cause we will see, we will see a shift uh, when we get, yes. when we get going down here. Mm-hmm. But that's what stuck out so much for me earlier on that I wrote down is your environment. Yeah. Well, I think the environment matters, but I don't think it dictates where you are because. Yes. I would agree we with that. See, we see um, Abraham who lives outside of Sodom and he's not like the Sodomites. Even Lot is though he's, he has some character defects. He's not like them. Um, Joseph and so on is living in the middle of things. However, the the concept that our environment and our friends and our associates influence us is, I mean, that's one of the highlights of this whole reading that I wrote down here, too. The, the, the Bible makes it absolutely clear. And it also speaks a little bit to the character of uh, Joash, Jehoash. Their alternate spellings. Uh, he seems to he seems to go with in, in to, to Tracy's point. Joash does go with kind of whoever's around him. If it's good influence around him, that's what he does. If it's bad influence, that's what he does. And there's a lesson in that for us, I think. Yeah. Well, we get told that Joash wants to repair the temple, and I tend to think that this is because of the influence of the priesthood. And I was a little surprised here. Were you? Were you kind? Of, 
kind of taken when you read this, are you sort of taken by surprise that the temple is in disrepair or did or did maybe it was this a more sudden thing that happened? Because we're kind of told of something that happens um, in a few verses after this where um, it seems like maybe Joash's brothers had done some vandalism. Uh, where would be his? Let's see, that would be Athaliah's son. So those would be his uncles. Ah, you're right. His uncles. Yeah. Because Athaliah uh, wiped out um, all of his actual blood relatives. Yeah. Oh, you're right. Yeah, Athaliah's sons. But, but yeah, so I, I found myself a little taken aback. I don't know if I, I want to say surprised or just, um, or just what, but the idea that the temple had fallen into, into this kind of disrepair it just just seemed just seemed um i guess yeah a little shocking to me but he he tasked the priests and the levites to go to the cities of judah to collect funds so i'm guessing at this point he's old enough to start making some decisions but clearly still under the influence of the priesthood because we're not told when this when this campaign begins in his in his uh, reign but we are told that by the time he has been king for 23 years. I believe it's his 23rd year as king. The priests still hadn't repaired the temple. They had been collecting funds, but they hadn't done anything with them. I don't know what they're doing with them. And question mark on mine, too. I didn't know if that was like referring to they were just kind of sitting there not being used, if they had been misappropriated. misappropriated. I didn't yeah. know. It, did yeah. anybody else kind of have that same question mark? Yeah, the Second Chronicles put a little bit more detail on it than the king than the King's chapters. But was it? Or sorry, I don't, is it First Chronicles? I'm sorry, I can't keep all the first and seconds. I okay. can't keep them straight. Yeah. Well, whatever. It is. The two the two chapters in whichever Chronicles we read, 24 and 25, those put a little bit more detail, and it. Like, he didn't go after the priest, like, hey, you spent this on the wrong thing. Like, so when he confronts, first of all, holy crap, that sat there for a long time. Like, he's 30 years old, you know, mm. by the time he even addresses this. And then, and then, like, he's not mad. He doesn't make accusations. So there didn't at least appear to be any misappropriation. Maybe, maybe the, maybe they hadn't gathered as as much as they thought, or maybe it just kind of disappeared into annual expenses and nobody was tracking it separately. But man, I tell you what, as soon as they put a, as soon as they announced to the people, Hey, we're doing this Moses style, we're doing this Moses style. Here's the, here's the chest. Here's where you put your money. You know, as soon as that happened, they had plenty. So either it was disappearing into the priest's funds and not, and just being used for other things, or the people were not contributing in a focused way. Yeah. Well, we are told specifically that, that, that when Joash confronted Jehoiada, that the priests agreed to stop collecting funds. So I got the impression maybe that this has just been, the money was just sitting around and nobody was doing anything with it. They did, maybe they didn't get together enough and have a committee to, to uh, appoint, actually appoint anybody to do the work. I don't know. A committee to appoint and a put to appoint a committee to do yeah. the right. A committee right. for a committee. <laughs> yeah, you know that's that's the way that's the way things work and and it's and it's uh it's it's effective and efficient, right? It's a nominating <laughs> committee, and you need one of those. Yeah, yeah, 
<laughs> well, they they agree that they they agree to stop collecting funds, so maybe the money is sitting there just doing nothing. And interestingly, they also agree that they won't do the repairs themselves. I thought that was sort of an interesting caveat to the to the decision making there. That um, and I'm going to go with obviously. The answer to that is obviously because it's been 23 years. Well, yeah, yeah. Oh, and by the way, yeah, we, we won't do it. Yeah, uh, we figured that out, guys. Thanks. Yeah, we know. <laughs> yeah. Um. But so we're told here, and I think this is the reason why the temple is in such a repair, or at least part of it. But told, like I said before, that Joash's uh, uncles, as I have been corrected, had broken into the temple and they had presented all of the dedicated things of the temple to the bales. So it sounds like they had they had busted in there and taken all of those. Um, well, I don't you know at this point. I don't know how much is left because we've had, we've had several raids and things, and things have just been kind of uh, walking out of the temple lately. But they had taken this stuff and dedicated it to Baal, and and so now we have. It sounds like maybe we've just got kind of an empty building there that's kind of fallen to disrepair. I think it sounds a little worse than that. I think they had been using this as a depot for their own building projects because when we have stone cutters show up and have to repair things it rebuilt it means stones were gone when carpenters come up and have to redo the framework then yeah. the framework had been disassembled and i think that we in the, in the west we often think of like okay we're going to build a new project well we'll go down to home depot or lowe's and we'll just buy all the supplies in ancient times, the way they did a lot of this is they would take apart something else. That's where a lot of the pyramids and so on went. It's like, well, where'd all the nice shiny outside go? It's like probably on somebody's house. They just went up and took it. It looks like that's what these uh, the people, I don't know, some of it had been Athaliah's relatives, but um, had just been taking apart the the temple for their own use. Right. It's pretty sad uh, and then I, I was thinking too that just like you were saying that is really sad because it was one of the wonders of the world at one point to yeah. in not so short a time like we continue to mention that now it's being picked apart it's just it, i just can't to me i just have a i mean i guess i i have a hard time picturing oh i don't know let's say the u.s capital people being able to just go up and just back a truck up and just unload a bunch of marble on, you know, just take apart some of the building and drive off with it and people being okay with it. Now it's just because it's a national treasure, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's what our, it's what, what we are. And every state has a state capital. You can't imagine people being allowed to disassemble your state capital building and go out and build a garden shed with the pieces. And that's, I mean, but the temple was even more sacred than any of those things for Americans. And here they're doing it. And I think it speaks more to the spiritual condition of their country. Overall, it's just a sad thing. Right. Well, now that now that the priests aren't out actively collecting money, uh, Joash commands for a chest to be placed outside the gate of the temple. So kind of it's a collection box um and i kind of wondered if this is the sort sort of where 
maybe the tradition starts of having a collection box in the church to drop offerings off. I know some places pass a plate in my church, our church. We just have we just have a box where you can drop it off as you come in if you as you choose. And then, uh, well, you know, I guess now I don't know. There, I'm thinking of other times too when you would have people going into the synagogues to pick the 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 story of the woman and her two mites and mm-hmm. and that. So the collection boxes. But my, I wonder if maybe something sort of started here because it's the first time first time I remember hearing mention of this kind of thing. Oh come on! I mean, if you're I, in a church leadership and you read a story where hey, that worked well to get a lot of money. He'd probably go like, hey, let's try that too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You're going to say something, Karen? Yeah, I I would be kind of surprised. Like, I think probably some form of a collection, of a formalized collection process, whether it involved a box or not, started a lot sooner than this because the first big call for offering that I'm aware of is Moses. Right. Like, we're going to build a sanctuary a tabernacle and bring us all of the things right and then once the priesthood is established the priesthood is a stat is paid they are supported by the collections and so at least by that time there was some kind of a formalized process yeah okay yeah, it's just an interesting uh, little um detail there's another thing in here that I think is worth mentioning. Uh, Paul mentions something like this as well, and it even goes back um, to the day, to the days of Moses, and that is they paid their vendors. Paul says, hey, look, even the worker is worth his wages, and he's talking about evangelists. And he said, you don't, even, even Moses said, you don't, you don't muzzle, that is, cover up the mouth of the ox that treads the grain. If, they're, if the ox is pulling around the, uh, the, the sledge, or the uh, the uh, um, grinding wheel, then they're allowed to get a mouthful once in a while from it. And I've seen this in places all over where churches think, well, you know what, we should people should just do everything for free for the church. Now I do believe that we can, and I have volunteered and provided a lot of services for a church at, at no cost. But when it becomes the expectation that you will do what you do for money for the church for free, I think that's a problem. I mean, to our listeners, to remind them that Matt's a, um, Matt's a professional electrician. Mm-hmm. He, he, that's what he does. That's how he pays the bills. And it would be unfair to say, hey, we're going to redo the, uh, this wing of the church. And Matt, we just want you to take two weeks and uh, you know bring the supplies and do all this stuff for free. It's like, well... Unless we're willing to pitch in and pay his family's mortgage and buy them groceries and you know, put his kids through school, we don't really have a right to ask him to donate all of that stuff. I, I just it's it's a thing for me I've seen happen, and um, it's a thing that I think if we're in a position of authority within churches that we need to be respectful of the people that we're asking to do work, like we're like the story right here, they're repairing, they're doing some new renovations and so on like this, because it's a, it's a, it's an inequity because if Matt's a, an electrician and we need to do work at the, at the uh, church, then Matt takes off two weeks and volunteers. But me, you know, I, I do some real estate and some uh, photography. It's like, oh, I guess I don't have to give anything. Right. See you, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? Payment, p- payment 
lends to uh, responsibility as well and accountability. You know, when you're paying somebody, you have a little leeway to expect certain things. Whereas if somebody's just volunteering, it's pretty hard to hold their feet to the fire, so to speak, to make sure that uh, the quality of what they're doing is is up to par and, um, you know, that they stay dedicated to the project, so to speak. So, yes, uh, it is important to pay people. Well, as they are doing their rebuilding of the t- of the temple, then a re- I guess it's a rebuilding project. I mean, it's such a refurbishment that it's just there's a lot, a lot that they have to do. But um, as they would collect funds and the chest would get full, the money would just go to the men working the temple. And somewhere I remember reading, I didn't write it down, but somewhere I remember reading that they really didn't even put an accountability for those funds on the people doing the work. Because it says that the, everybody was just being honest about it. Everybody was, it's like everybody was just happy to do it. The people uh, working on it, the people supplying the funds were happy to do it. And um, in some ways, it makes me wonder why in the world did it ever get let allowed to, to go so bad in the first place? Well, you're looking at the flip side, though. <clears throat> that flip side of integrity. Mm-hmm. Like these people were... They were happy to be involved. They were proud mm-hmm. to be involved. They're rebuilding the temple. And they they showed up. They did their jobs. They produced the skills that they had. And they were honest with their money. So that's the that's the flip side. And I, I mean, it's like anybody who's ever looked at church books, you know, like a typical local church. I'm not, I'm not talking about like world headquarters or something like that, where the, the income is going to look pretty phenomenal because there's all these members contributing. I'm talking about on a local level, like most, most churches, they're not sitting around pretty flush, you know, they're running, they're running lean. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so on the, on the end of the people who show up and do the work, do it well, like just, have some integrity about it. Have some ethics. Yeah. Right. Well, they're rebuilding the temple. They're focusing on the building, not not the articles within the building, at least not until the repairs on the temple were complete. And we're told that offerings, burnt offerings, were made in the temple for the rest of Jehoiada's life. And mm-hmm. something is will come into play there in a little bit. The narrative shifts slightly with... One of the Syrian kings deciding to advance on Jerusalem. And Joash, it's it's a very short little blurb in the Bible. But uh, as the Syrian king is approaching, Joash basically buys him off by pretty much just giving him the farm. Uh, all the sacred things that had been dedicated by Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, there must have been another Jehoram, of course there was, uh, Ahaziah, um, all the gold in the temple treasury. Gives it all, just gives it all to Haziel, king of Syria. Well, and... so it, it reads just like that in Kings. Mm-hmm. And then as we read in Second Chronicles, because it sounds like in, in um, Second Kings 12, like Joash is just like, oh, here you go, just take all this. But then there's the little lines in Second Chronicles 24, and it sounds like they just took it. It's kind yeah. of... It it it's kind of sounds like it was his choice in Second Kings and in Second Chronicles. Uh, I, I'm here in twenty four twenty three. Then at the end of the year, the army of the Syrians came up against Joash. They came to Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed all the princes. So they killed all the princes of the people. 
and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. Though the army of the Syrians had come with few men, the Lord delivered into their hand a very great army, because Judah had forsaken the Lord, God of the fathers. Thus, they executed judgment on Joash. Yep. So mm-hmm. It's this. It, we get sometimes little clues between the two books as to what's going on. One's, one gives a little bit more. It's a strange thing, because unlike we have seen before, where people say, oh, we're going to turn to God, and what should we do, and we're surrounded by the enemy. Well, he, there's no clue of that here, ever. It's yeah. just like Judah just folds in front of the Syrians. There's yeah. no request for deliverance. There's no offer of deliverance given. They just, all their princes are wiped out, and all of their, all of their bank accounts are emptied. That's just, and then boom, they're gone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like it was relatively quick, and and uh, yeah, this is this is the best the best idea he came up with, and uh, doesn't sound like a great one. Well, Jehoiada the priest, who has in my mind basically been raising and advising Joash, he grows old, grows really old, one hundred and thirty years old. And he, surprisingly, not surprisingly, he he dies at 130 years old. Now, cool. This is kind of cool, though. He got he got buried in Jerusalem with the kings because of the good he had done. You know, we've talked about some kings who were so awful they wouldn't even bury them with the kings. And here we have somebody who is not a king, and he gets buried with the kings. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of cool that yeah. that he was given uh, that kind of honor. Especially, he basically was a king. You know, if the well, king is seven and you're his point. advisor, I think you basically are the king. So that that country, I think, probably ran for a long time under under Jehoiada's word. Mm-hmm. That's a good oh, point. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Well, when he dies and his influence is gone, the leaders of Judah the quickly. I cannot understand this. Every time it happens, I just I just shake my head. But they keep going back to their idolatry. God sends prophets and they won't listen. Mm-hmm. And his uh, Jehoiada's son, Zechariah, comes and he specifically calls him out. He says, why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he also has forsaken you. I, I'm, clearly, I'm clearly not alone in just being taken aback at this at this constant reversion to these false religions in a land or at least you know we're we're looking at it in hindsight of course in the bible which is which uh you know in a perspective intended to draw our minds to god but i just cannot understand how these people continually revert back to this 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 fake stuff yeah, so where Matt's coming from is the, the narrative, if you read the narrative only in Kings, you'd be missing a lot of this. Yeah, for but sure. The narrative is in parallel in Second Chronicles 24. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned that Jehoiada had died at 130 years old. That's in Second Chronicles 24, 15, and four, 16 as he was buried with the kings. And this is to what Tracy alluded to at the very beginning of our podcast. Here in 24, 2 Chronicles 24, 17, 
Now, after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. Then the king listened to them, and they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. And it says, the, the writer of Second Chronicles says, Yet he sent prophets among them, God sent prophets among them, to bring them back to the Lord. These testified against them, but they would not pay attention. And then to what Matt was saying, here comes this guy, Zechariah, who is actually Jehoiada's son. Now remember, Jehoiada uh, and his wife had rescued King Joash. He would have been killed by Athaliah when he was seven years old. They had personally rescued him and held him for, hid him for what, six years? So it was a yeah. year old when they took him? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and Zechariah says just what Matt read. You know, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so you can't even prosper? And then in 21, but they conspired against him. It is against Zechariah. And by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. That's so awful. Thus, mm -hmm. Joash did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had shown him, but killed his son. And when he was dying, he said, may the Lord see and avenge. So this it, this isn't just a kind of a slight, uh, gentle left turn that um, Joash is making here with the kingdom. It's, it's worse. Mm -hmm. What was that story we read a week or two ago about? about a king like two kings get together and they're like well we should go you know we should go do this thing and one of them says well i mean have you asked have you uh we we've asked all these prophets isn't there a prophet of god left and he's like well yeah there's one but he never says stuff that i like mm -hmm. right As I yeah mm -hmm. so so I'm, I'm remembering that and that seems very apt right now because apparently that is a continuing streak in human nature mm -hmm. yeah. i'm also remembering a text in the New Testament, I think it's 1 Corinthians, where it basically summarizes what we said when we started off. And it's something to the effect of, you know, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. Yeah. All right. So come back to your senses. Stop sinning. Right. And then there's also that text in Proverbs that says, above all things, guard your heart. Because from it, spring all of the issues of life mm -hmm. right like there's all this stuff that says it and yet human nature is just so easily distracted by whatever happens to be right in front of it like we're looking at these people who are continually diluting the the religion you know the religion of worshiping the one true god with you know worshiping the statues the false gods of the nations around them well it's Certainly, we don't do any of that now. <laughs> We're very pure in our worship. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is let's think of just just let that soak in just a little bit. Is that this is an old problem, and it's a current problem, and yeah. it's not just a them or just us. Because this is what Jesus was saying. Let's not forget this. Is that when Jesus said, "I've sent you prophets, and you stoned them." This is what this is. This right here is one of the things he's talking about. Now, who was he speaking to? He was speaking to the religious leaders. Now, we, we spoke earlier about, you know, this is a, the Independence Day weekend. 
if there were people in Jesus' day who were waving the flag and saying, we stand for our country and we're God and country, it was the Pharisees and Sadducees. Let's not forget that. They were all about their country. They were for the preservation of their country. They were the true patriots. And Jesus was the one subverting this. Mm -hmm. And it's just easy to just kind of take our paddle out of the water and just float with the current wherever it's going. And if we keep in context that where we are is a great controversy between Satan and God. This isn't against liberals and conservatives. It isn't against, you know, um, communists and um, free market people. This, this isn't against, it's just, it isn't. The Bible says this is this is about Satan and his kingdom and God and his kingdom. And and so we have we have Jesus reaching out to people way back here saying, hey, keep it. Keep your eyes on on me. Keep your eyes on this kingdom. And it's so easy to to uh, Tracy's earlier point to just forget about that. And go with whatever influence happens to show up. Now, my hunch is, is that these guys who showed up in Second uh, Chronicles 24 to Joash, they were probably, they had something to gain. Because these, these princes came and paid homage to the king. And the king listened to them. So obviously they were telling the king something other than what he had heard. So they had an agenda. And it's, it, it is our responsibility to keep our eyes on God, to keep listening to him. Uh, in spite of what people are whispering in our ears or telling us to do, that's our responsibility. You know, I have written down too that when I was reading this, it was it was clear and decisive and violent. When you stone somebody, this that's a decision that you make right there on the spot. It's not one that you were wavering, you know, and oh, let's throw them in jail, and oh, let's you know do this and that. This is quick, final, and decisive that kind of tells you where they were at right there as a nation that they were not with God at all. And that's kind of how I took it, that that's, that's how far they had strayed so quickly, again, to be definitely not with God and not with any of his prophets and not agreeing with anything that was being sent to them. And and I would take that a step for, further and say all of all of what Tracy just said and unwilling to even hear the truth. Okay. Mm -hmm. So while you were talking, Eric, I was remembering this text in Jeremiah. I couldn't quite remember what it said. So I rummaged around and found it and it's in Jeremiah five. And if this isn't a summary of what we're reading now, and I, I think we can all sort of see it playing out today and in human nature and in all of the generations, Jeremiah 5, 30 and 31, a horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy lies, the priests rule by their own authority, and my people love it this way. What will you do in the end? All right. So I think there's times when you can put a finger on the leaders being corrupt. And I think there's times when you can put a finger on the followers being corrupt and all in all, we're all susceptible to the same things. It just has different fallout according to the position we hold. Definitely. Well, there comes a point where the Syrians come again. They seem to be the constant thorn in the side of, of Israel and Judah. 
And they start destroying leaders from Judah and Jerusalem and sending spoil back to Damascus. And a small company of Syrians defeats the large army of Judah. And we're told specifically it's because God delivered them up in judgment. Uh, this may have been some of that judgment that Eric was talking about earlier with Joash's as Joash fell into apostasy. And um, the Syrians are kind of the tool that God keeps using to oh, sort of be a correction factor here. But uh, Joash gets wounded. And his own servants, they conspire against him and kill him in his bed. Apparently gotten so bad that even the people who work for him can't uh, just can't abide his leadership anymore. He gets buried in Jerusalem, but we're told he's not buried with the kings, which is an interesting contrast compared to Jehoiada, who was not a king, but was buried with the kings. And then his son Amaziah takes over in his place. I'm going to stop right there and just, add, just interject this one little thing. Did any of mm-hmm. you guys, I had a set of books when I was a kid. Uh, we have of our children. It was Bible stories. And Boy King Joash is one of them. Mm-hmm. Any of you guys remember that or hear this? Oh, yeah. Story? Oh, yeah. I think we do kids as, and adults a disservice of telling only part of the story. Because my children's story, Joash was this wonderful little boy king, and he wanted to rebuild the temple, and he took up offerings and rebuilt the temple. Isn't that awesome, the end? Mm -hmm. And I think humans, we are more complex than that. Our stories are more complex than that. It's Here's this kid who, we've talked about it, was, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, under the influence of the people he kept closest. And when Jehoiada was the closest, he did the right thing. When he kept his counselors, who had ulterior motives, closest, he did other things. And he went bad. And, and when we when we omit these things, we end up with the idea that's like, all right, well, once you start on a good trajectory, I guess you could take your hands off the wheel and just coast. And mm-hmm. we lose the complexity of like, yeah, you can start out really good and you can end really badly. Which, in essence, might be a better story for children. It's certainly more realistic. Right. More relevant to mm-hmm. what they're going to come up against. It's but, also uh, not as good for bedtime. Okay. Sure. <laughs> well, there, you know, the editors agreed with Karen. <laughs> I think, I think we, yeah, I think we do, a, we have done a lot of disservice to scripture over the, over, over time. By we, I just mean, uh, you know, Christians that, have these sort of influences of telling the stories you know we don't we don't tell about how uh samson liked to hang out with you know go go get prostitutes and and uh he was kind of a womanizer you know we don't tell that story we tell about how he was strong and 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 uh you know and if he got a haircut it would be bad for him but we don't we don't really get into the details of like okay why why was he in that situation in the first place right um, you know, lots of things, you know, you know, we'd like to tell David the story of David and Goliath and how the little boy knocked down a giant with a rock. But we don't talk about how he he uh, murdered a guy so that he could sleep with his wife, you know, or I guess it was in the other in the other in, uh, opposite order of that. But, um, yeah, we uh, we tell the we tell the little bedtime stories, like Karen said. And, and I don't know, I think it might do a disservice, especially for some people who that's all they think the Bible is. Right. Um, 
couple weeks ago, like Karen was saying, um, somebody wanted to name a dog um, Jezebel, Jezebel because they thought because they thought she was a heroic queen in the Bible. Not just a queen, just but a queen. Just uh, <laughs> yeah, more th- more think along the lines of evil queen from Snow White, man. I mean, she yeah, was, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it, it is complicated because here, see, with the prosperity gospel, we're given the idea that hey, if you're working for God, everything's going to work out awesome. Wait a minute, Zechariah in in Second Chronicles twenty four twenty, and I quote: "Then the spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada." He was doing exactly what God asked him to do, and he was stoned to death. Yeah. Let's not forget that this doesn't, we have Stephen, who testifies before the Sanhedrin in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. He is doing the work of God. And I guess the reason that that's important to tell, these, to tell the whole story um, is that if you find yourself in a situation like, man, I thought I was doing God's work and, and things were going badly for me. Hey, guess what? It doesn't always go awesome just because you're doing God's work. Now, he would like it to go awesome, but the world didn't go that way. Um, I just think that's really, really, really important to keep in mind that, that hey, this is, this is a complex picture. We get another part of that in, in 2 Kings 13, and this is a this is a heavy text when you really let it soak in. Second Kings thirteen fourteen. Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, mm-hmm. come on, Elisha yeah, had double the spirit of Elijah. Yeah. Elijah got taken to heaven in a fiery chariot. You know, he never died. He didn't get sick. He and here's Elisha who got a disease, and he's going to die from the disease. Um, In our family, we've got several of us on this podcast whose spouses have had cancer. And I hope none of our listeners have had this experience, but we have. Uh, Good meaning, I would assume. I'm going to attribute them to good meaning. Church member comes up and goes, well, if you just had had faith, this wouldn't happen. And I'm thinking... So we're supposed to have more faith than Elisha? Let's let's actually like slow down and think about this. Anyways, it, it just goes to the complexity of the stories and how all of our stories are not the same as the one who came before us. All right. Well, the narrative shifts over to Israel now to uh, the son of Ahaziah, who becomes king. His name is Jehoahaz. Now remember that the kingship king kingship had had uh, shifted away from that family and had shifted over to Jehu, who was, uh, if I remember right, a captain, a captain of the army. And he had come through and cleaned up, cleaned up the yard and gotten, uh, he'd done his part in Israel to get rid of all of the Baal worshipers in a really brutal, but uh, very straightforward story. But now... You mean the uh, part where you stood up in front of them and lied to them all? That was the straightforward part? Well, I mean, straightforward in in that in that he uh, he didn't pull any punches and um, just just got got the task done. Yeah, yeah it was story. It was an interesting story. But now now Ahaziah's son becomes king, and we're told that he reigned for seventeen years, did evil. 
I don't think we're going to have a whole lot of stories. Well, especially in Israel, we don't get any more. We don't get any more. He did goods in the sight of the Lord from Israel from for now through the end of of these two books we've been been looking at. Okay, you know what I noticed as it was rattling off these kings, it would say it would say, and then so and so came to power, and they did, and and it makes a comparison to an ancestor, mm -hmm. and they did good or they did evil as so and so had. Okay, and the thing the thing that interested me is that God is tracking who introduces evil to His people. Oh, that's yeah. Like it references back. So-and-so did evil, as had so-and-so who caused the people to sin. Like, holy cow, the people in power, the people who hold power over other people, God's paying attention. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that over and over. And every time, the first time I read it, I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> hmm. And then, you know, the third or fourth time I read it, I was like, oh, hey, no, we ain't messing around here. I wonder if it's that just that scope of influence that you have over multiple people that you're held more responsibility, more accountability. Oh, you know, absolutely. Sometimes I chafe at the fact that I am a complete peon and no one will even notice when I die. But at moments like this, I think, yeah, that's that's not bad. That's not bad. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot to have uh, a lot of responsibility to be put on you. But yeah, we are absolutely our our amount of influence. And our and our position of leadership absolutely puts more uh, responsibility on us to to lead um, to be a better influence and a better example. So think about this. Think about like like you think of yourself. You're married, right? And and you married somebody who's a spiritual adult. They're responsible for their own decisions. Yes, but you're part of their sphere of influence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And your spouse is part of your sphere of influence. Are you following what they're doing? Should you be? Do you need to say something? How are yeah. you raising your children? When you screw up, because you will, <laughs> how do you handle that? How do you handle your coworkers? But you, you know, it's just like, whoa, it might be a small puddle, but everybody's got their little splash zone where they make a difference. Mm -hmm. Well, Israel gets delivered to Hazael and Ben-Hadad of Syria. And Jehoahaz, he actually does plead with God for deliverance. And God uh, does send them a deliverer, it says. And I think that comes, uh, I think that story comes in a little later. But even though this happens, Israel still doesn't abandon the sins of Jeroboam. Like we were just talking about, this goes all the way back to that first king of Israel when Israel split away uh, and we had the splitting between Judah and Israel. So, yeah, let's, um, let's just, let's just, I just want to just take 20 seconds and re remind our listeners in case you didn't get that part of the podcast is Israel and Judah split the king of Israel because, because Jerusalem is in Judah and that's where worship is supposed to happen at the tabernacle. Well, the king of Israel didn't want his citizens going to Judah to worship because he was afraid, well, well, if they go to Judah to worship, they might not come back. And so he said, well, I'll just put up our version of worship and God here, and we'll call it good enough. And he made two golden calves. But he said, no, 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 these aren't these are not the calves of, of, of Egypt. These represent God, the same God that's in Jerusalem. It's just we're doing it a little bit differently. It's all good, good enough. Stay home. We'll keep it convenient. And you can worship right here. 
that was the sin of Jeroboam. He didn't say they're a Shirim or they're Baal. He said, no, this is this is actually the same God in Israel. We're just doing it. Uh, we're just kind of making it up on our own here a little bit. God, continue, to, to Karen's point, continually references this as the root of their problem and sin. Yeah, so they, they don't they don't abandon the sins of Jeroboam. And Jehoaz's army gets reduced down to 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers. Israel had been a pretty big military presence before this. And this is, this is they're fairly well wiped out after that at this point. Like the uh, dust and the threshing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. But and we're told that a Joash, another Joash, reigns after Jehoahaz. We were talking before about how we're just we, we know we're going to get mixed up between all the Joashes. There's a lot of Joashes. Uh, we don't get a whole lot of information about Joash here, though, because we're told he reigned for 16 years, did evil, and he was succeeded by Jeroboam the second. So that's the way I put him is Jeroboam the second. Uh, we've already talked briefly there about the death of Elisha, how he became sick and was going to die. As he becomes sick, Joash, who we just talked, were told uh, uh, was reigning in Israel, he's he he comes in because he's concerned about the state of his of his army that is now teeny tiny. And Elisha has him shoot an arrow out the window. I guess he kind of helps him. He, they kind of put their hands on together and uh, shoot an arrow out the window. And Elisha calls this the arrow of the Lord's deliverance from Syria. Then he tells Joash to strike the ground. And so Joash strikes the ground three times, and Elisha becomes angry. He says, you should have struck it five or six times. You would have destroyed Syria, but now you only strike them three times. I don't know. I'm not sure why Joash would have known that and why, why that would be something for Elisha to get angry with him for. Yeah, I thought the same thing. Yeah, because yeah, I've I mean, wondered that too. I that one—that's a little detail that's puzzled me and bothered me for a long time. But I think there must be something more to it that that Elisha was like, you know, be vigorous and thrash the floor. Be that's what I thought. It's like how much seal are you taking with this instruction that I'm giving you? Hit the ground, and it's like so. You know, I can only see him like maybe. Okay, I'm just gonna pacify this guy and that's right. And just kind of right. hit the ground. And he's like, No, I wanted you to take this on a hundred percent and give me maximum effort, and you didn't. And that's this is right. why. That's right. He just phoned it in and wow. Yeah, that really stuck out to me. I mean, this his his unwillingness to like go all in had pr- pretty profound repercussions. We're told that Elisha dies. And then we're given, boy, he's not done with miracles even when he's dead, apparently. And you remember we were talking about all these just different miracles that Elisha performed and how some of them, they were just, they were just kind of seemed strange and almost disconnected. And here, uh, another man is being buried and there's some Moabite raiders coming. And so the people that are burying him, they're like really quickly, they just, they just tuck him into Elisha's tomb. And as they're laying him down, he happens to touch the bones of Elisha. And he comes back to life. Just like that. We're not given a lot of detail about the story. Only that he was resurrected when he touched the bones of Elisha. There was something, there seems like there was something special going on with Elisha. I mean, I guess we, he got, what, double the portion of the spirit that Elijah had. 
Elisha, there was a lot going on with Elisha. It's very interesting, all the miracles that he did and how it was just sort of what he did. A lot of it. Well, Israel starts to capture, recapture some cities from Syria. God remains gracious to Israel because of their covenant, the, 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 the old covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So even though Israel isn't being ruled by that line of David, they are still, God still considers them under the covenant that he had given way back to Abraham. So that was interesting. Even though we have all of these, these kings continually doing evil, that God is still holding them under the covenant that he set up with them all those years ago. And, but, and we're told, Joash defeats Syria three times and takes back some of those cities that had been lost under Jehoahaz. And uh, so, yeah, he would have done, if he had followed the instructions from Elisha better, he could have done even more. Well, we shift back to uh, Judah and Amaziah. We're told he was 25 years old when he became king, reigned for 29 years. Says he did right, but not with a loyal heart. That was an interesting way to put that. So it's like he was doing the right things, but maybe not for the right reasons. But he immediately executes the servants who had killed his father, but not their children, because he was uh, at least looking at back in the law of, law of Moses, where children are not to not to die for the sins of their parents. And then we go into a war against Edom. We've got three hundred thousand men gathered. 20 years old and above. We've got another 100,000 men hired from Israel for 100 talents of silver. But now here's a little interesting blurb here. Not a blurb, I guess. But uh, the prophet tells him not to take the Israelites because God is not with Israel. And Amaziah's, Amaziah's biggest concern here is the money that he's already paid out to the Israelites. But the prophet says, the Lord's able to give you much more than this. You ever get concerned about the, the ob, anytime we get concerned about the obstacles that seem to be put up in our way um, when maybe God has been asking us to do something and we worry about it and we let the obstacles become walls. Um, there's probably been a few times in my life when that has happened, when uh, maybe, maybe God was, had called to do something specific and I thought, yeah, but you know, and uh, but this prophet, he's like, no, God can God can handle that. You don't need to worry about that. That detail so. added in Second Chronicles 25. Again, it's one of those things where if you were just reading it in Second Kings, you'd miss that detail. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, the uh, the Israelites, Amaziah decides, OK, and he discharges the Israelites. And the Israelites aren't happy. Interesting. I, you know, somebody said, hey, uh, come fight in a war for me where you might die and I'll pay you some money. And then the, and then they said, oh, you know what? Uh, keep the money and go home. I, I don't know that I would be angry, but, but I think <laughs> I think there's just a little bit of pride involved here because they go. They 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 leave in anger. They're upset that they're now they're not still part of this thing. This would just be pride getting in the way. But Amaziah leads his men without the Israelites to the Valley of Salt, and they kill 10,000 Syrians. Now, this next part is a little gross. They, the men from Judah, they take 10,000 prisoners, and they throw them from the top of the what was called the rock. 
and uh, this rock is um, known as Sela, or as in the, the notes of my Bible says, this is Petra. So if you're familiar with Petra, um, this is in that area. But that seemed a little a little rude. Take prisoners and then just and then just pitch them off a cliff. Kind of uh, a little disingenuous or something there. Just not 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 great. The times that I'm aware that they've done things, you know, like that, take a high caliber bullet, shoot it through two people at once. You're saving bullets, right? Line everybody up in a pit and just throw dirt in on top of them. Why Why are you wasting your ammunition on the enemy? You know, there's some pretty horrific things that go on in wartime. No. I, I don't think you need to look for a whole lot of reason in it because no. we're nasty to each other. And then True. when we won, when, we, when we've won, you would think we would back off. No, no, we're still nasty to each other. Well, Amaziah, not only do they kind of be nasty to the prisoners, but Amaziah brings the gods of the Edomites home. See, here we go again. They're, they're, it's like, what? I, 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 it would be interesting to get a little more historical context in this and understanding why in the world they would keep turning to this sort of thing. But he I just, love God's response, though. Yeah. I love God's response. So, yeah, he brings some of the idols back and begins to worship him, worship them, and... God's response through a prophet is, why have you sought the gods of the people which could not rescue their own people from your hand? It's like, <laughs> exactly, God. <laughs> it's like, okay, you just defeated these people. You know they were probably praying to their God, and and you you, you defeat them pretty soundly, but then you're just going to turn to what they had turned to. And so, it's, yeah, it's like God is like, why, 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 why are you doing this? So I, I'm clearly not alone in my assessment here of going, why do you keep doing this? And but then Amaziah's response, it's like he's like, who made you my counselor? Just shut up before I kill you. Just doesn't want to listen, I guess. I, I don't know. God, the, the prophet has one last statement. He says, I know that God has determined to destroy you. Well, yeah. Amaziah seems to have a habit of not listening to good advice mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. he's he says what to us would be just kind of like, what are you talking about? He says to the king of um, the king of Judah, says to the king of Israel, come, let us look one another in the face, which isn't kind of like, hey, let's go get lunch together. Apparently, this is a I want to fight you. Mm-hmm. And uh, Amaziah they they throw these weird taunts at each other and tell this story about a thistle and a cedar and a tree and a it's it's a it's kind of it's I don't know I guess it's the uh, ye old school of uh, talking trash to each other <laughs> very funny to us in Second uh, Chronicles twenty five you can read that in uh, seventeen to to um, to nineteen but here's the thing but Amaziah would not listen. For it was of God in order that he might give them into the hand of the enemies. Um, but the king against Amaziah says, why provoke trouble? Mm. And the guy just, he won't take, he won't back down. He's like, I'm going to go straight into trouble. And he does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he he's taught, he, he he's challenging Israel to a battle here. And, and Joash of Israel, like Eric said, is just like, why are you doing this? Let's not do this. 
this would not this isn't going to go well for you. Let's not do it. But Amaziah just won't listen because he thinks that God is going to give up Israel because they're worshiping these Edomite gods. Um, they go and they face each other on Judah's home turf in Beth Shemesh, and Judah is defeated. Amaziah is captured. And then Joash comes and he breaks down the wall of Jerusalem, a whole 600 feet of, of wall. And he takes all the gold and silver from the temple and the king's house and a whole mess of, of hostages. So Amaziah was not acting wisely at all here. He sounds like maybe he he was getting a chip on his shoulder. He he thought he had some advantage that he just did not have. And uh and nope, it didn't it did not go well. Nope. For him. Well he did he'd gotten a, a victory in battle mm-hmm. that he failed to recognize was from God. He got to thinking it was him. And yeah. he let his head get big and he wouldn't take counsel from God's prophets. He wouldn't he wouldn't even take counsel from the enemy. He was like, Don't go there. Yeah, yeah, it is It is frustrating when you can tell that your leaders aren't listening to good counsel. Well, he actually does live for 15 years after Joash of Israel dies. Uh, so, I don't know, I guess, was this in captivity? We're not given, we're not given any detail at the reading at this point. But um, after he turns away from God, he, the people conspire against him. He must have gotten away, I guess, because he, he flees the lakeish. They find him, they kill him, and they bury him in Jerusalem. So the peop- even just the, the people have had it with him. Well, Jeroboam II reigns in Israel. We're not given a whole lot of in, uh, information on him in the reading this week. But um, he became king 15 years into Amaziah's reign, reigned for 41 years. So it sounds like, like, uh, like, like maybe right after, well, of course, after Joash dies, he becomes king. Come on, Matt, put it together. Reigns for 41 years, did evil, but he did restore Israel territory from Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, as had been told, foretold by God through Jonah, we're told, which is a name that we will get into very soon in our reading. And he is succeeded by his son, Zechariah. And that's pretty much all we hear about Jeroboam the second. Now, speaking of, well, do we have any last thoughts here before I go into what we're getting to next week? I have no thoughts ever. <laughs> That's think not just, true. There's a theme that we keep coming up with is advice given and advice rejected. Sometimes taking bad advice and sometimes rejecting good advice um, and the influence of of who we listen to um, and what's around us. I think that's a lesson that transcends this immediate story and applies to us. Okay, well, we just got a brief little blurb about Jonah, and that is going to be relevant for us because in our next discussion, we will talk about the book of Jonah. And I think um, that book alone will be plenty for us to talk about in for that time. Uh, it's one of the most famous stories of the Bible. Um, an excellent Veggie Tales movie made about it. And <laughs> highly... I seriously do recommend it. It is so good, and it's so much fun to watch. It's just, it's just a hoot. That's it's, true. I, I will, I will back Matt up uh, on this one here. <laughs> it seems silly the Veggie Tales version of it, but I really think that the Veggie Tales version of Jonah 
at the core of it. There's a lot of silliness in it. But at the core of it, it really gets to the story of Jonah. And again, I think we've done a disservice by making it into a children's story when it really, really deals with a lot of core issues having to do with who God is, who we're supposed to be, how God deals with evil, how his justice and mercy. It, it actually covers a lot. It's not about a fish, really. It's about a lot of other things. So much more than a fish. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. It's a. It's a fantastic story, with so so much to take to heart. So that is what we will talk about next week: the Book of Jonah. So read up on that. Watch the Veggie Tales movie if you have a chance. I highly recommend it. And then come back to us next week. While you are waiting for that, make remember you can reach us at attbpodcast at theadventure.org. You can find us on Facebook. Please be sure to share the podcast with your friends and family. And make sure you subscribe to the podcast so that we reach you in your feed each and every week. And we look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening.